When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. Come with me and step into the complex and contentious world of the death penalty in the United States, a topic that has haunted the country's history for centuries. From the early days of the colonies to the present, the practice of sentencing criminals to death has been a hotly debated issue, one that has polarized even the most seasoned legal professionals and human rights advocates. In 1972, the country came to a grinding halt when the Supreme Court put a de facto moratorium on the death penalty, citing that certain statutes were being unfairly implemented and disproportionately affecting the poor and black communities. But the reprieve was short-lived, and the death penalty was reinstated with revised statutes just four years later in 1976, in the case of Georgia v. Gregg. The very next year, the moratorium on executions was also lifted with the execution of Gary Gilmore in Utah. Today, 27 states still uphold the death penalty, while others have abolished it altogether or placed a moratorium on its use. And while we won't argue for or against its use, we'll dive deep into the history of death penalty cases in Connecticut, specifically the last execution before the nationwide suspension and the first and only execution to follow it. The remaining states, California, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, currently have a governor-imposed moratorium due to concerns about ethics, bias, innocence mistakenly being sentenced, and the impact on victims and their families. Oregon and Pennsylvania have granted reprieves or clemency to prisoners on death row and commuted their punishments to life sentences, whereas California is changing the way appeals are processed although they have not executed any inmates since 2006. 
Like I stated earlier, the death penalty is not a topic that we are going to argue for or against. Those opinions are your own, and we are not qualified to carry out such a discussion. So get ready for a thought-provoking and eye-opening look into the complex world of the death penalty in America. Okay, on to the show. From the 1600s to the early 2000s, Connecticut and its justice system carried out 126 execution of death row inmates. In this period of time, the method of execution changed from hanging to the electric chair to lethal injection in its most modern iteration. This all ended in 2012, when the Connecticut Senate and House of Representatives voted to repeal the state's death penalty, meaning that the harshest possible punishment for offenders in that state would be life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. According to the New York Times, these prisoners would be confined to their cells for 22 hours a day, as well as being incarcerated separately from other inmates. But in the 1950s, there was no such call for abolishment or moratorium, and the electric chair was still considered the most appropriate, if not the most humane method of execution, when Joseph Daborski decided to spend the next decade of his life terrorizing the Connecticut County of Hartford. On March 23, 1950, Joseph Daborski had an unusual birthday plan. He wanted to spend it robbing a local liquor store with his brother Albert, while most siblings opt for a fun day out or a special dinner to celebrate a birthday. These two had their sights set on a different kind of adventure. For Joseph, this wasn't out of the ordinary, but this was the first time his crime would escalate from petty theft to murder. Albert, acting as the getaway driver, remained in the car as Joseph took his time committing armed robbery before shooting and killing the owner of the store, 40-year-old Louis Wolfson. Things would take a dramatic turn for Joseph and Albert. While Joseph had initially roped in his younger brother Albert to be his partner in crime, it soon became clear that it was a grave mistake on Joseph's part. You see, Hartford police had no leads, no evidence, and no witnesses to the robbery and murder. They were left stumped without anywhere to turn, until Albert came knocking. While some may consider this a cowardice move, it truly was bold of the younger sibling to turn against his brother and confess his involvement in the crime. Perhaps Albert was in for a bit of fun, But when Lewis Wolfson was murdered, that changed everything for him. Fast forward to June 7th of the next year, and both brothers would find themselves in a court of law awaiting sentencing. Due to Albert's confession and cooperation, he was given a life sentence for his role in the crime. Joseph was sentenced to death, which at the time would have been carried out using the electric chair. You expect that would be the end of the story, that both brothers would have remained behind bars until their time came. But that is not what happened. Neither brother would stay in prison for long. Albert suffered a breakdown and was transferred to a mental health facility, where he would stay as he was considered to be incurably insane. And this would provide the once-in-a-lifetime get-out-of-jail-free card for Joseph, who appealed his conviction as soon as he heard that his brother was deemed mentally ill, getting his lawyers to request a second trial. The grounds for his appeal was that Albert, the only witness to the robbery and murder of Louis Wolfson, 
was now deemed unreliable due to his declining mental state. Therefore, both his confession and his trial testimony could no longer be considered sufficient evidence to convict Joseph Taborski. Since there was no other witness to the crime, Joseph could not be retried. So, in October of 1955, the Connecticut Supreme Court overturned both his conviction and death sentence, setting Joseph Taborski free after only spending 52 months on death row. It was a remarkable turn of events that left people scratching their heads in disbelief. Joseph promised to turn his life around, reportedly saying, You can't beat the law. From now on, I'm not even going to get a parking ticket. As you might imagine, this promise was soon broken, and the very next year, Joseph was on a criminal rampage that would be even more devastating than the first. This time, his accomplice was another felon, Arthur Meatball Columbi, whose lawyer described him as illiterate and mental defective. Their criminal partnership began back in 1948, before Joseph landed himself in prison. But when he was released, it didn't take long for the dynamic duo to reunite and start wreaking havoc once more. By 1956, they had a new target in mind, local package stores and even a hotel. But their criminal activities were fueled by more than just desire for quick cash. Arthur and Joseph had a penchant for heavy drinking and were often intoxicated when they committed their crimes. Joseph's violence was also a cause for concern, as he initially resorted to physical assaults such as pistol whipping or bludgeoning his victims. But before long, he would take things to a whole new level of depravity. On one occasion, according to the Hartford Current, Joseph and Arthur were robbing a grocery store when Joseph ordered his accomplice to murder a three-year-old girl while he beat her grandparents unconscious. According to Arthur, however, he hid the girl and told her to be quiet before shooting the ground to fool Joseph into thinking he had killed her. It's a horrific moment that will stay with you long after hearing it. However, despite the darkness of this moment, it's worth noting that even Arthur couldn't bring himself to follow through with Joseph's brutal request. On December 15, 1956, the pair robbed a tailor shop, though sources differ on whether they murdered the tailor or beat him, but left him alive as they had their previous victims. They then headed to Cup's Tidal gas station in New Britain. Arthur then pretended to be a gas station attendant as another customer drove up, but raised the driver's suspicion when he spilled gasoline on the car. When the driver, Daniel Janowski, exited the car to confront Arthur, Joseph forced him into the station at gunpoint, forced him to kneel, and then shot him in the head. Daniel wasn't the only person in his car. He had his daughter, Cheryl Ann, in the car with him. But thankfully, the two murderers didn't seem to think she was a threat because of how young she was. Joseph told Arthur that 16-month-old Cheryl Ann isn't old enough to talk, and they left her where she was. By then, the police believed that the earlier robberies and these murders were connected. The case was given to Sergeant Sam Rome, who was, according to the New York Times, Connecticut's most celebrated criminal investigator. Unfortunately, they could not work fast enough to prevent more deaths. Eleven days later, the two men killed again targeting another liquor store on the day after Christmas, this one in East Hartford. They again robbed the store and shot the owner in the head. This man was 65-year-old Samuel Cohn. At this point, the community was terrified and full of anxiety. Even liquor store owners were taking drastic measures to protect themselves, 
closing their doors three hours earlier than usual at 8 p.m. It was a desperate attempt to avoid becoming a target of these dangerous men. In fact, this fear was so pervasive that it led to a lasting change in the community. A law was passed that mandated earlier closing times for liquor stores in order to keep both workers and patrons safe. This law remained in effect for decades, with store owners and lawmakers alike recognizing the need to prioritize public safety in the face of ongoing threats. It wasn't until 2003 that the General Assembly of Connecticut finally voted to extend the hours of operation, motivated by the need to generate much-needed revenue. However, this extra precaution didn't keep everyone safe. On January 5, 1957, just 10 days after their last murder, Joseph and Arthur robbed an East Haven shoe store. Joseph told the owner of the store, Frank Adenolfi, that he was looking for a pair of shoes in size 12, an unusual enough request that when Frank went away to try and find something for him, Arthur was able to force him into a back room, where either he or Joseph then severely pistol-whipped him and left him for dead. Two customers, Bernard and Ruth Spire, were also forced to their knees, shot and killed when they entered the store. One last victim, pharmacist Jack Rosenthal, was robbed in his drugstore a month later, then shot in the chest. The 69-year-old died from his wounds before police arrived at the scene. But Joseph and Arthur had made a mistake. One of their victims was still alive and had identified them to police. Frank Adenolfi told detectives that the taller man of the pair had worn size 12 shoes and identified a photo of Arthur as a man who had beaten him. Sergeant Rome, who was familiar with Joseph from his earlier murder conviction, knew that he was a tall man whose previous crimes fit with the ones that they were now investigating. Rome then had Arthur followed and his suspicions were confirmed when Arthur was witnessed being driven home by Joseph. The two were picked up for questioning, then later charged for a breach of the peace, which granted three more days of questioning. And then, while Joseph repeatedly denied his own involvement, Arthur cracked. He confessed to his part in the robberies, assaults, and murders, and implicated Joseph in all of them. Rome then played the ace up his sleeve, Mabel Taborski, Joseph's mother. He asked her to speak with Joseph alone, but in a room that was bugged, to see if she could get her son to confess. She did as she was asked, telling Joseph that she would still love him if he confessed. And he finally broke, sobbing as he admitted to her what he had done. And with his confession, which also included the killing of Lewis Wolfson back in 1950, the investigation was all but over. Arthur Columb and Joseph Taborski, the Mad Dog Killers, as they were known, were sentenced to death for their crimes. Arthur appealed and the U.S. Supreme Court overturned his conviction in June of 1961, but he opted to stay in prison for a life sentence under a guilty plea for second-degree murder. It is believed that Arthur was comfortable in prison and feared being released into a world he was lost in. He died in prison in 1980, outliving his accomplice by two whole decades. Joseph Taborski did not appeal and he was executed on May 17, 1960. He died in the electric chair of the Wethersfield State Prison. He remains the only convict in Connecticut to ever have ended up on death row, twice, and the final unwilling execution carried out in the state. But his execution wasn't the last, and our second case in this episode culminated in the final man to ever be executed in Connecticut. If you're a longtime listener of the show, 
The youngest 2018 episode, entitled The Roadside Strangler, features the next criminal we discuss. But we are approaching this case a bit differently than that episode. Since his crime spree included Connecticut, we felt the need to discuss him again. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Michael Bruce Ross was born in Connecticut on July 26, 1959. His parents, Daniel and Patricia Ross, kept a chicken farm that had been in the family for three generations. And that was where Michael and his three younger siblings would all grow up. It seems life in the Ross family was not a happy one. Daniel and Patricia reportedly only married because they discovered Patricia was pregnant with Michael. And she hated everything about life on the farm. At one point, she ran away to North Carolina to be with another man, and although she eventually returned, she was still deeply unhappy, so much so that she was institutionalized in a mental health facility at Norwich Hospital. The doctor who admitted Patricia to the facility reported that the mother of four had talked about suicide and beating her children, and the latter was likely something she did often. Her unhappiness heavily impacted Michael in particular who took on most of Patricia's anger and abuse, according to one of Michael's sisters. It has also been alleged that those close to Michael suspect one of his uncles may have sexually abused him while he was babysitting the young boy. However, this cannot be verified, as that uncle later went on to complete suicide, and Michael himself never spoke of experiencing sexual abuse. In fact, Michael claimed to remember very little about any abuse he may have suffered as a child, but he did know that when he was younger, he loved working on the family farm and helping his father. One of the jobs he took on at only eight years old was killing any chickens that were unhealthy and wouldn't be profitable to raise any further, a job that was his uncle's before his suicide. Michael would kill the chickens with his own hands, strangling them until they were dead. 
he would take on more responsibilities around the farm as he and his father got older. By the time he started attending Killingly High School, his father was relying on him to help run much of the farm, but this didn't impact Michael's schooling in the slightest. An agricultural teacher, Douglas Butterfield, recalled Michael was the only student to ever score a 100% on his final exam. And this was par for the course with Michael. With a reported IQ of 122, Michael consistently achieved high enough grades that once he graduated in 1977, he got into an Ivy League school for further education. He entered New York's Cornell University the same year he graduated high school, and there he studied agricultural economics, much in line with his love of farm work. As a freshman, Michael joined a student government group for students with his field of study, as well as the Alpha Zeta fraternity, which was popular with boys who, like him, had grown up on farms. But Michael himself wasn't always too popular. Paul Lederhaus, who lived across the hall from him during one of their years at the university, said, he was one of those people, either you liked him or hated him. And he talked incessantly. He was an authority on everything and could be a pest. Paul also recalled that despite his intelligence, at one point, Michael had been put on academic probation. Michael had always intended to return to his family's farm after graduation. But while he was at Cornell, his parents separated and eventually decided to divorce. After this, he would tell his friends he did not have much of a family anymore. Also, while at college, Michael began dating a woman in the ROTC, the Army Reserve Officers Training Corps. He was certain that he would marry her one day, but she had different ideas for her future than he did. When she decided to abort an unwanted pregnancy, their relationship was on shaky ground. And when she later signed up for a four-year service commitment with the ROTC, Michael decided enough was enough, ending their relationship. Towards the end of their relationship, Michael would later reflect that he had begun having violent sexual fantasies about women. During his sophomore year, Michael started stalking women, and it was not long before he started acting on his violent fantasies. In the spring of 1981, a string of rapes took place against the women students of Cornell, and it is strongly believed that these were committed by Michael, who at this time was apparently engaged. All but one of these victims would survive the assaults they suffered. 25-year-old Zong Nak Tu was a graduate student in economics. Her family had come to the U.S. fleeing the Vietnam War, settling in New England where they have stayed ever since, and they were all immensely proud of Zong. Her father described her as an idealist who worked hard. She sponsored orphan children and volunteered to help cancer patients. She was very small, under 5 feet tall, and under 100 pounds. Zong had been studying in Warren Hall, a campus building in Cornell, on May 21, 1981, the night that she was assaulted and murdered. She was raped and strangled, and her killer disposed of her body by throwing her off a bridge. Her body was not discovered for several days finally being found in the waters of Fall Creek, and her family would not find out who had done this to her for another 24 years. Michael Ross, who worked in Warren Hall and lived near where Zong's body was found, went on to graduate with an agricultural economics degree only weeks later. In September of the same year, Michael visited Illinois for a business trip. At the edge of the city of LaSalle, he forced a 16-year-old girl into the woods and restrained her by shoving a handkerchief in her mouth and wrapping a belt around her face. He told her to lie down, but before the assault could go any further, police happened across the scene and took him into custody. 
Michael was charged with unlawful restraint and he pleaded guilty, which only landed him a $500 fine and two years of probation. Sergeant Lewis of the LaSalle Police described him as kind of a wimpy little guy who he didn't think would seriously harm someone. Sergeant Lewis had no way of knowing that Michael already had seriously harmed several women and would go on to harm several more. On January 5, 1982, Tammy Williams had been visiting her boyfriend in her hometown of Brooklyn, Connecticut. Her journey down the quiet country road of Church Street turned into a nightmare when she was attacked, raped, and brutally murdered. The killer then concealed her body in a wooded area, leaving Tammy to be forgotten for over two and a half years. Two months later, on March 1st, Paula Pereira left Valley Central High in Wallkill, New York early, saying that she wasn't feeling well. The 16-year-old then attempted to hitchhike to her boyfriend's house, standing on the street opposite her school to try and flag down passing cars. Her friend Jackie Yule would later tell the Times-Herald record that Paula had only taken up hitchhiking a few months earlier, calling her loving and trusting, maybe too trusting. Paula was picked up by a driver, taken out of town to a wooden stretch of highway, and dragged out of the car. Her attacker raped and strangled her, then left her body and drove away. He still had her purse, which he threw out of the window as he drove down I-84. Paula was immediately reported missing by her family, and her body would be found 17 days later. In 1982, Michael was working at Croton Egg Farm in Ohio as a production manager. Donald Harvey Sr., another supervisor at the farm, said that his colleague was a hard worker but widely disliked for the way he behaved. According to Donald, he was bossy about his position, and having a position of authority was something he got off on, adding that he always reminded people he went to an Ivy League university. Michael was let go from the job only three months in, after he attempted to assault another woman. On April 26, at 11.30 p.m., he knocked on the door of 26-year-old Susan Adrian and claimed his car had broken down, asking to use her phone. However, he didn't realize that Susan was a Columbus police officer and more than capable of fighting him off when he reached for her throat with a gloved hand. He fled the scene when he realized he was outmatched, but he had made one very silly mistake. He had told Susan that he worked at Croton Farm. Michael was quickly picked up the next day and charged with assault, to which he pleaded not guilty. After his employers fired him, he returned to the Ross family farm to await trial, during which time he underwent psychological evaluation at the Brooklyn Learning Clinic. His evaluation described his behavior as predictable and consistent, yielding positive results for Michael. Perhaps because of this, when he returned to Ohio for trial on August 4, 1982, he changed his plea to guilty telling the court that he acted as he did because he was upset about his parents' divorce and harbored angry feelings about his mother. Michael was fined $1,000 and sentenced to six months in county jail. He was released after four months on December 22nd. While Michael was awaiting trial, however, another woman would be assaulted and killed. 23-year-old Deborah Smith Taylor lived with her husband in Jewett City, Connecticut, and was last seen late at night on June 15, 1982. Sources differ as to what happened that night. The New York Post reported that Deborah and her husband were estranged and she walked out after a fight with him, and that she was last seen sitting on a bench in Danielson. The New York Times, however, reported that Deborah and James had been driving when they ran out of gas near Danielson, 
at which point they separated to look for a service station to get their car up and running. Deborah was never seen again, and when she was reported missing the very next day, extensive searches were carried out in an attempt to find her. Sadly, four months later, her body was found, and the medical examiner's report said that her skull had been crushed. Deborah had also been sexually assaulted. Michael Ross kept his head down for a while after his stint in prison, and when he filed an application to work with the Prudential Insurance Company through the State Insurance Commission in May of 1983, he indicated that he had no criminal convictions. Once his application was approved, Michael sold insurance door-to-door with his colleagues. They would have widely varied opinions on Michael, reporting his work and sales would go from extremely successful to nothing in no time at all before skyrocketing and dipping again almost randomly. Daniel Dunn, who sold alongside Michael, said that every time a lady came to the door, he'd start talking very aggressively, and sometimes I couldn't get him to stop. Daniel also said that this behavior only happened with women. Paul Fleming, another Prudential agent, shared similar stories, saying that when they drove together, Michael would make a crude remark about almost every woman they passed. Co-workers also reported that during parties where they were present, Michael would be perfectly fine and polite one moment, only to start speaking to a woman and do so in the crudest, foulest terms. Paul Fleming also mentioned that Michael claimed he sold most of his policies to women in the 15 to 24 age bracket. On November 16th of 1983, Robin Stavinsky left her secretarial job in Norwich. Robin was 19 years old, a 1982 graduate of Wyndham High School who was a state discus champion. She was meant to meet up with her boyfriend after work that day, but she didn't show up or contact him to reschedule. A week later, her body was found, covered with leaves by a jogger on Route 32 near Norwich State Hospital. Her autopsy showed that she had been raped and strangled. Robin's parents went to great lengths to try and find out what had happened to their daughter. They wrote an open letter to her friends appealing for information, and Governor William O'Neill buffered their appeals with an award for $10,000. However, nobody came forward with any useful information, And the only new piece of evidence to be unearthed was when Robin's purse was found about nine miles away from her body, several months after her death. On April 22, 1984, Leslie Shelley and April Bunai were last seen walking from their homes to a nearby pizza parlor in Griswold, Connecticut. They were both 14 years old. Both girls were murdered and April was sexually assaulted. Their bodies were found two months later in June. Wendy Baribault was a junior at Norwich Free Academy when she vanished. Age 17, she was last seen walking along a road in Lisbon, Connecticut, on June 13, 1984. A huge search effort was made to find Wendy, involving firemen, neighborhood volunteers, and bloodhounds. Two days later, they found her body. She had been hidden beneath a pile of rocks that formed part of a stone wall, and she too had been raped and killed. It was then that police investigators finally caught a break. A witness had seen a man following Wendy driving a blue 1983 Toyota and reported this sighting to the state police. They then checked 2,000 cars registered with the State Department of Motor Vehicles that fit that witness description. One such car belonged to Michael Bruce Ross, who was flagged because of his prior offenses, which was attempting to assault the teenager in Illinois and Ohio police officer Susan Adrian. Michael Malchik, assigned chief investigator in Wendy's case, was the one who interviewed the owners of similar blue Toyotas, 
before he finally landed on Michael Ross. During this interview, Michael spoke openly about his previous attempted assaults, and in doing so, enough red flags were raised that Malchik believed he might have found the perpetrator. On June 28, 1984, Michael Bruce Ross was taken into police custody, and by the end of the day, he had been charged with capital felony murder for the killing of Wendy Baribald. During the course of the interview, Michael had also given police information that led them to discover the bodies of Leslie Shelley, April Brunei, and Tammy Williams. Police believe that Michael was also responsible for the murders of Deborah Taylor and Robin Stavinsky, and it didn't take them long to acquire enough evidence to charge Michael with six counts of capital felony. Four counts included kidnapping, and two counts included rape. Capital felony murder was the only charge to carry the death penalty in the state of Connecticut. A year and a half later in November 1985, Michael stood trial for the murders of Tammy and Deborah. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 120 years in prison. Convictions in the cases of the other four women and girls, Leslie, April, Wendy, and Robin, would follow in July 1987. He was found guilty of kidnapping and strangling all four victims, and in Wendy and Robin's cases, he also received a conviction for rape. The culmination of all of these sentences was the death penalty, recommended by the jury after only four hours of deliberation. His execution date was set as September 15th that same year, and according to law, that date was automatically stayed for a mandatory state Supreme Court appeal. Two names you'll notice are missing from that list of convictions. Michael Ross was not initially prosecuted or charged for the murders of Zong Nok Tu and Paula Pereira, his first and third murder victims. Although police suspected he was involved in their deaths, Michael would not confess to the murders until he was already on death row. He confessed to the rape and murder of Zong Nok Tu in 1987, and it's unclear why he was never charged in this case. One police investigator, Scott Hamilton, claimed that he could remember calling the family, but they were not interested in pursuing anything. And when he tried calling again, he was told that the family had left the country. The prosecutor at the time Michael was first suspected in Zong's case, Benjamin Bucko, did not remember ever contacting the family and said they could not prosecute due to lack of evidence at the scene. He also said that Michael had confessed to the murder to a psychiatrist, which was something that would complicate whether it was admissible in court. The next district attorney, George Dentis, said that they never laid charges because Michael had already been sentenced to death, and this woman was a foreign student whose relatives didn't even want anything done. Zong's family, however, could not recall being contacted about any suspects, nor had they moved out of the Bethesda house they had been living in since 1969, much less left the country. They did not even discover Michael Ross was a suspect, never mind that he had admitted to murdering Zong, until they were contacted by a reporter the week before he was scheduled to be executed in 2005. During this phone call, Zong's brother, Lon Tu, told the reporter, My sister went back to college one day, and then we heard she was dead and that was it. Her father also voiced frustration with how the investigation was carried out. He believed that if the police had been more active and more efficient, the other women's lives could have been saved. In 1994, during an interview with the BBC, Michael showed interest in Paula Pereira, which gave state police cause to compel a blood sample from him. This was matched to semen that had been found on Paula's body over a decade earlier, and on December 3rd of 1998, Michael confessed to the murder of Paula Pereira. 
During this videotaped interview, Michael could reportedly be heard saying, As soon as I saw her, she was dead. Michael was eventually convicted of murdering Paula Pereira in 2001, with the sentence of 8 to 25 years. He would only end up serving four of those years before his execution in 2005. But we're getting ahead of ourselves by talking about the execution of Michael Ross, because between his sentencing and his death, there was a huge amount of legal back and forth to deal with. Starting in July 1994, when the case went to the Connecticut Supreme Court. At this time, they affirmed his conviction, but reversed the death penalty judgment, ordering new sentencing hearings. They did so based on the opinion that the defense should have been allowed to include evidence of Michael's mental condition in the first trial. In 1986, the defense team moved for a dismissal in the case of the murders of Leslie Shelley and April Brunei. They did so on the grounds that the two were not murdered in Connecticut, and therefore, were not in the jurisdiction of the state. However, it was denied. Michael tried to complete suicide in 1998, but survived the ordeal. In December 1999, the Connecticut Supreme Court denied the request for a new trial due to the failure of the state to turn over necessary psychiatric evidence. But in April of the next year, a new London Superior Court trial took place. In this instance, the defense claimed Michael had a condition called sexual sadism, and that this should be considered when sentencing him, but the jury reimposed the original death sentence. In order to recommend this penalty, the jury had to find that the killings were especially cruel, heinous, or depraved, and that there were no mitigating factors that could spare the killer's life. This decision was then reaffirmed by the Connecticut Supreme Court in 2004. In 2004, Michael elected to represent himself and refused his right to any and all further appeals, electively confirming his own execution. His reasoning was, quote, I owe these people. I killed their daughters. If I could stop the pain, I have to do that. This is my right. His private attorney, T.R. Paulding, asked the law and public to respect Michael's wishes when he repeatedly invoked his right to die by execution. But this was not the final word on the matter. Following this, there were several attempts by various people close to Michael to intervene on his behalf, claiming incompetence. They argued that Michael was a victim of death row syndrome and was no longer sane due to the sheer amount of time he had lived under a death sentence. Both Dan Ross, Michael's father, and a public defender attempted to do so on numerous occasions, but had all of their requests denied. There was, however, some success in getting a stay of execution. On January 24, 2005, a U.S. District Court issued a stay of execution until a hearing could be had to assess whether Michael was mentally competent enough to waive his right to further appeals. From there, there was a flurry of activity. The state's attorney appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, which then vacated the stay of execution that had been issued only three days earlier. On January 31st, motions were filed for competency hearings which again postponed execution as the Connecticut Supreme Court issued stays. These hearings saw four psychiatric experts give testimony, two of whom testified to Michael having a personality disorder that made him wish to be executed to avoid looking cowardly. The other experts strongly disagreed with this assessment, saying that in their professional opinions, he was both genuinely remorseful and competent. Despite all efforts, however, the final decision made by the New London Superior Court and the Connecticut Supreme Court in April and May, respectively, 
was that Michael Ross was competent and perfectly capable of willingly choosing to waive any further appeals. Against the wishes of anti-death penalty protesters, Michael's father and his sister, Donna Dunham, who unsuccessfully filed a last-minute appeal to intervene on Michael's behalf, Michael Bruce Ross was executed by lethal injection on May 13, 2005. Roughly 400 protesters stood outside the Osborne Correctional Institution, and several family members were present as he was executed. He was 45 years old and had spent 18 of those years on death row. It's a sobering reality that we must face. The unjust targeting of women, including trans women and female-presenting individuals, for merely doing everyday things that we often take for granted. In the case of this particular tragedy, all eight of the victims were young women, under the age of 25, who were walking alone at the wrong place and the wrong time. It's heartbreaking to think that these individuals were going about their lives, minding their own business, only to have their lives cut short by senseless acts of violence. Thank you for listening to today's cases. Those were the last two people to be executed on Connecticut's death row. Joseph Mad Dog Daborski and Michael Bruce Ross, 45 years apart. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me this episode as we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now, true crime underscore cases, Facebook at True Crime Cases W Laney and Instagram at True Crime Cases with Laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com. And of course, we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk with content editing by me, Laney. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or We Talk of Dreams.com.